because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. After a, an unusual week last week where I featured a recent talk of mine on Arguing to 100, check that out if you haven't already, this week we are back with our usual panel, including Don Watkins from Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna from Germany. Hey, Stefan. Hey. And just for the purposes of full disclosure, we're recording this a little bit earlier than usual. Usually we, we record this on the Tuesday before the Wednesday it comes out this week uh, because a bunch of us have vacation next week. We're recording it on Thursday, March 28th. So if something dramatic comes out before then and it's not reflected in this episode, that's why. We're going to jump right into some stories. And I think Don is going to be first with... I assume something on the Green New Deal. Yeah, so this week, and I guess last week, for those of you actually listening now, the Senate had a procedural vote around debating the Green New Deal, and 53 Republicans and four Democrats voted against it, and everyone else, including the co-sponsors of the bill, many of whom are running for the Democratic nomination for president, voted present. So it had exactly zero people voting to support it. And I think on one level, this, I mean, it reveals a real cowardice on the part of those who've been vocally supporting the Green New Deal, that like they want the benefits for being associated with doing something about climate change, but not actually take responsibility for a plan that would outlaw reliable energy and impose unimaginable costs on us. But I was more disappointed that I thought it was a real opportunity for Republicans to not just um, attack the Democrats for having a a really awful plan, but to stake out a positive alternative. That is, when you are able to position the other side as doing something really bad, that's the perfect opportunity and the right opportunity to let people know what you actually stand for. Um, but I think instead they just use it as a way to tie Democrats to a bill that they think is easy to campaign against as something extreme and and socialist. So I would really like to see a positive agenda uh, come out of this. And so far, that hasn't happened. So I know you guys both saw the Mike Lee presentation, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I heard a couple of comments on this before I saw it. And some people thought, oh, you're going to really like this because it mentions human flourishing. And so I started watching it. And it's, I mean, the first thing is just really weird that he's, you know, you think about, okay, he's got 13 minutes or so, or that's what he ends up taking to talk about this issue. And then he has this thing of, it's really hard to capture, but Ronald, the the idea is I'm going to treat the Green New Deal with the seriousness that it deserves. And then he shows this image of Ronald Reagan with, I think, a machine gun on a T-Rex. And the idea is that, uh, that is not what how Reagan won the Cold War. And by the same token, the Green New Deal is is not how we're going to win against climate change. Now, unfortunately, there's no definition of climate change, no specificity. And so there's this so, so it's a kind of clever thing though. Okay, this is he's saying it doesn't deserve any respect. And then I have to say, I laughed at a few points, particularly where he brought out, I don't even know the reference, but I think it's from Star Wars, maybe? It's yeah. some, uh, as, as a Star Wars thing, like some, uh, I forget what the animal is, but some kind of um, flying or sea thing. And then there's like Aquaman. And the idea is that these are what would be replaced. Th these are what we would be relying on, i.e. non-existent things if we had acted on the ideas of the Green New Deal. And then he makes this point that, well, you're going to object that these, the the talking about outlawing air travel and outlawing cows, that was just on a draft that was released by Ocasio-Cortez's office, but shouldn't have been. And then and then I thought he was going to say something interesting about how, well, this this shows their actual thought process and motivations. But instead he said, well, they can't even be uh, they can't even have a good press release management policy, yet they 
they're trying to manage our whole lives. And, and that's a kind of a decent point to make. But so it, it was a lot of time ridiculing. And again, there are, there are a few things that I thought were pretty funny, but then there was the idea is, okay, what's going to happen at the end? What is, what is he going to say positively? And I had heard, okay, human flourishing is going to come up. So I'm waiting for that. And it came up maybe in the last 30 seconds or so. But the way that it came up was with the idea that the solution to climate change, again, there's no, the problem is completely undefined. So it's just dogmatically taking this as this, this undefined problem. But the solution is primarily having more kids. And then there was something about, well, if we keep having kids and we keep being good moms and dads and whatnot, then that's going to lead to innovation and that's going to take care of the issue. And that was pretty much it. And then he talked about human flourishing, but it was primarily in the context, I think Don told me earlier uh, before the show, that it's like human flourishing in the sense of, yes, the population of humans in the world is big. What, what I really, it's not even that there's no truth to this, because in a sense, yes, human beings having kids can in some way lead to more innovation, and innovation is related to any problem, including any problem associated with the undefined climate change. So that's kind of true. But there's no addressing people's actual concern, which is people's actual concern is that the energy we're using to power our lives is raising CO2 levels to levels that people believe are very dangerous and might even overwhelm all the benefits that we get from energy from fossil fuels. And so there's this question of what do we do about them? And of course, on this show, uh, the three of us have many times expressed our views on it and that the benefits are far, far, the unique benefits of fossil fuels are far, far, far more significant than any unique byproducts, including CO2, and that the, the climate benefits of having a lot more energy overwhelm any negatives of it being warmer, not even mentioning the positives of it being warmer and the positives of more plant growth. So there's you can make these kinds of arguments, but he didn't address any of that at all. I don't know. I mean, he barely said anything about energy and thus his the position he's articulating is really incoherent because really the argument is well there are so many people consuming a lot of energy and the more people who are consuming this kind of energy then the more our climate livability is endangered in the future and it's there there is an argument that population causes more and more of a problem and so to just say well oh no the solution is having more people because that'll lead to innovation well, we've already had seven and a half billion people. We already have seven and a half billion people. And that, by everyone's statement, has not led to enough innovation to deal with the problem. Now, in my view, it, it mostly has because we've innovated ways to master climate. And so we're actually safer than ever. But if you accept, oh, climate change slash, slash CO2 levels are a problem, then obviously having more kids has not addressed the problem. And so to just say, oh, yeah, we'll have more kids, that that seems like denial because you're talking about a problem and then you're not actually doing anything to address it. And so I, I with all due respect to everybody who liked this, and there are certain parts of it to like, this this definitely came across as denying the problem as completely unserious and and unserious about the problem, not just unserious about the Green New Deal as a solution. And therefore, it just reinforces the idea that there are these courageous people, mostly Democrats, who are trying their best to earnestly fight an urgent problem versus the reality, which they're doing their best to fight an urgent solution, which is billions of people having cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, and then the aspiration of billions more having it so that they can make every aspect of their lives better, including the livability of their climates and the quality of their environments. So uh, disappointing, still the need for a positive alternative and the need to properly demonize this 100% renewable movement. Stefan, what's your first story this week? Uh, my first story is about an uh, actual Republican alternative. So Republican Congressman Matt uh, Gates has a will propose what he calls a Green Real Deal 
which is supposed to be an alternative to the Green New Deal. I, I just uh, want to jump in for a second and say that, okay, when when you're copying the person's language, it's not going to be a good, you're not an original thinker. I think this will be borne out by the rest of what you say, but there's something really off with, if somebody proposes something horrific called a Green New Deal, you better, why are you basically copying it? Anyway, go on. Yeah, I think it's it's somewhat appropriate because for reasons that will be revealed soon. So um, a, a five-page draft version has been leaked. And of course, it's not a final version, but if, if it resembles anything uh, that the final version will be, it's, in my opinion, an absolute train wreck because uh, it generally acknowledges all of the things that the Green New Deal claims. So it's a resolution and makes certain statements about you know, what is happening in the world and then what we need to do about it or what Congress needs to do about it. And I just want to to give a quote from the very beginning of that. So the resolution says, and while mitigation and adaptation efforts have expanded substantially in the last four years, they do not yet approach the scale considered necessary to avoid substantial damages to the economy, environment, and human health over the coming decades. And that's, of course, references to the damage of climate change um, and it, in this very sentence, it gives away the moral high ground, of course. It acknowledges, oh, this is a big catastrophe that's coming our way, and here's how we approach it. And so it presents at, as positive, of course, natural gas uh, production in America uh, soaring over the recent years. But it also uh, says, oh, yeah, solar capacity, wind capacity go up, electric vehicles go up, and so on. So sort of the all of the above approach that some Republicans had already shown. Uh, and it also pretends, similar to the Green New Deal, that uh, all these programs that we need to uh, to start to, to deal with climate change will actually be a big economic boon to the United States. So creating jobs and profits for companies, putting America in a leadership position, and so on. And some differences between this and the Green New Deal is that uh, the new resolution uh, says that carbon sequestration, hydropower, nuclear power, and other alternatives need to be invested in. Uh, but it also encourages more solar and wind deployment. So what it, so if I had to summarize it, it says, oh yeah, we also we agree that a climate catastrophe is a big deal, and we need to get away from fossil fuels. But uh, we don't want the radical things in the Green New Deal. We are not as ambitious. And we also think that something like natural gas can be part of the solution. Yeah. So, I mean, there's something here. So I, I've become really interested in working in my work in general and in working on Moral Case 2 in particular on how do you think about the right policies if CO2 is a problem because it's an interesting thing to think through and it's important uh, to think through because it's hypothetically possible it could be and stuff like like those kinds of problems can hypothetically exist and so it's good to it's good not to just say well we're we're relying on the fact that it it has such a benign effect and even has some positive effects and the that the uh, that the energy effects that it comes with or the, the abundant energy that comes with emitting co2 is so overwhelming in its benefits including its climate benefits compared to the co2 that's true so that's that's important to make as as just stating the truth but it is important to think about okay what would you do if you know if this byproduct of co2 was a big problem and it's it's worth just noticing how Gates or Getz or whatever his name is, I apologize for not knowing the pronunciation, how his view, basically what he's adopting is just the conventional uh, nonsense of just, oh, there are just all of these things that people talk about as in some way related to lowering CO2 emissions. And so I'm just going to repeat all of those, including solar and wind deployment, which have the problem of they're not cost effective. They actually end up emitting a lot of CO2 because of how much they cost to build and then how much less efficient they make the fossil fuels that they depend on. So you you want to really think about, it's worth thinking about, okay, what are the actual cost effective ways or most cost effective ways, I should say, to reduce CO2? What would that look like? That's a legitimate kind of exercise. And if he did that, I think it would be problematic 
even then, given the, the state of the actual facts, but it would at least be useful. And then we could talk about things like decriminalizing nuclear and at least investing, investigating certain forms of CO2 capture and then looking at, at geoengineering. I mean, you could think of there, there's, I was thinking of this today, working on a section of the book, and there are certain buckets that things would fall into. So one is, is the bucket of, you know, how can you, how can you eliminate or minimize uh, byproducts? And so that's the kind of the category of having different forms of energy or like nuclear or using more natural gas or even looking into, um, well, you know, th those would be some main ones. And then also you can ask, well, how can you, uh, I guess the other thing would be CO2 capture. You know, you could, you could do that. And then that would benefit not only energy production, but you could theoretically pull CO2 out of the atmosphere if you really, really needed to. And then there are, okay, there's, that's the category of how do you, how do you minimize it or neutralize it? And then there's the category of how do you um, offset it? And, you know, how do you offset its climate effects? And then that would be things like attempting to somehow cool the earth. So you, you want to think of it systematically and scientifically, which includes precisely. And that's just what is not happening at all. So it's just, it's mimicking this conventional focus on just all these different things, but really this obsession with renewable being natural. And that is a, that is a, a focus that that leads to very, very bad energy solutions, really leads to energy problems. Don, what's your next story? All right. So there's a recent decision um, by a judge in Wyoming. This is a U.S. district judge where the Bureau of Land Management had leased public lands for oil and gas. And uh, the judge concluded that they did not sufficiently take into account the impact of climate when giving out these leases to oil and gas companies. So a bunch of environmental groups uh, sued. And now BLM has been told that they have to redo the leasing process and no development can occur during that time. And uh, I mean, th this is would be a troubling precedent because it means a further hurdle that would have to be cleared um, in order for oil and gas to occur on public lands. Although right now it doesn't look like that's an immediate threat. But the one thing to note is that the climate impacts were actually addressed during the initial leasing process. But basically what the judge said is that the impacts weren't quantified in a way that in reality is not possible at this stage, since it involves knowing how many wells will be developed. And that's not something that's known beforehand. And so traditionally what happens is that you have site-specific assessments that go on and that would account for um, you know, climate impacts. But the judge said that this would lead to ignoring what he calls the tyranny of small decisions. And he says that given the national cumulative nature of climate change, considering each individual drilling project in a vacuum deprives the agency and the public of the context necessary to evaluate oil and gas drilling on federal land before irretrievably committing to that drilling. And what I found interesting is that I do think there is a an issue with in, in general in life with the tyranny of small decisions, if you want to call it that, but that it's particularly relevant in blocking projects, which is exactly what the Greens and the judge are doing. That is, they get away with slowing down and stopping development in large part because no single project or no single delay is seen as that vital. But the net result is that we've slowed down uh, progress so much that we're depriving ourselves of energy. We're depriving ourselves of the ability to rapidly improve human flourishing as much as possible. Whereas if we were presented with a uh, macro level decision, it would be much more clear the kind of destructiveness of exactly these kinds of decisions. I like that point. Um, not, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I mean, what do you, what do you think can be done? to make people aware of the tyranny of small decisions. I have one idea, but I'm curious if you have any. Well, I think one of the major ways is that one of the things that we always advocate is that you're tying things to your ideal, which is what, another way of saying that is that you're tying it to a larger principle. 
And whenever something's tied to a larger principle, you see its application in a much wider sphere. So if the, if our whole focus is on human flourishing and then components of that like energy abundance, that by itself, that alone, always making sure to have that at the forefront of your mind whenever you're making a decision, then lets you see the wider consequences of a narrower decision. So yes, delaying this project might not be that bad, but if the question is, do do fossil fuel projects improve human flourishing that that activates the wider question of are we slowing down development in general or is this just a particular project that has real problems that need to be addressed and slowed down i wonder if there's a role here for calling out the hypocrisy and or injustice of the people opposing it and i've been I usually tend to be inclined against hypocrisy arguments, but I've become very interested in an idea I discussed a couple of weeks ago, which I talk about industrial collaboration, which is the phenomenon that we used to each be our own kind of little industry in our homes, and we would produce energy and other things with a whole bunch of side effects and risks, and we would accept them because the benefits of the energy were, were so great. I use the example of a coal stove in the home. But then when we collaborate with industrialists to take that production, have it occur somewhere else in a more centralized place uh, with you know, much more efficiency and therefore way more benefits for the price and way fewer side effects and risks, then there's this hazard of saying of being able to say oh somebody else is doing that to me i disagree with that even though no you actually agree with it if you're participating in the civilization you you actually chose that you're just using the phenomenon of distance as saying oh no i don't uh, i don't want that and i think it it's very important to call out the people and i sometimes call them freeloaders i sometimes call them blockers but who oppose industrial progress and yet benefit from it, who, who choose the benefits of it, but then are choosing to de deprive others of the benefits of it. So I think that's a, that's a fruitful direction that I'm going to continue exploring. Well, there's, I mean, there's two kinds of hypocrisy arguments. One is where you just point out that people are hypocrites and that's supposed to like lower their side and elevate their, your side. But the, where hypocrisy is re relevant is where it reveals that the thing that's being attacked is exactly what you pointed out. It is vital to human life or it's, or it's something that is inescapably valuable, even though it's being portrayed as not valuable. And so whenever you can use hypocrisy to illustrate that people are attacking something that they actually in their actions value or depend on, I think it's, it, it, it doesn't fall into the same category as like, hey, you, you are a bad person. Yeah, I think I've said something like that in the past, and so it's good to be it's good to be reminded of that. That's that's a good point. So maybe we need more explicit classific uh, classifications of different kinds of hypocrisy reveals. Stefan, what's your next story? Uh, Colorado will have another obstructionist law coming soon. So just weeks after Senate Bill One Eighty One, which we featured in a previous episode. Uh, was introduced. Now there's House Bill 1261, and this will set uh, CO2 emission goals for the state of Colorado uh, of 20, uh, reduction goals of 26% by 2025, 50% by 2030, and 90% by 2050. And also uh, a bunch of strategies primarily based on renewables, uh, as the language re reveals, um, in the state. So the 26% reduction by 2025 uh, is actually already in place by executive order from former Governor Hickenlooper. And uh, so I think this reflects that uh, the Senate Bill 181, the older bill, actually wasn't about a reasonable reform of uh, regulations in Colorado. Uh, where, you know, you just uh, want to make good regulations to protect the health while also developing. So the ultimate goal by the majority in, in the Colorado legislature, which is, of course, democratic right now, um, is actually to 
end all consumption and production of fossil fuels in the state. Uh, and the, the bill's language says, yeah, currently uh, harmful climate change impacts are happening and we need to uh, adhere to the goal of limiting warm planetary warming to 1.5 degrees uh, C. And we want to transition to 100% clean economy is how they formulate it. And uh, of course, again, the argument is this will be an economic boon to Colorado and we will be leaders in this and there will be no negative consequence, or at least there are no negative consequences mentioned in the, in the current version of the bill. And uh, one particularly bad part of this type of legislation, uh, besides it being super local in Colorado, of course, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't matter that much in terms of CO2 emissions, but it also punishes oil and gas rich states locally. So even if you would say, okay, we want to gradually phase out fossil fuels, what you are doing with this kind of local legislation is you are punishing the developers in your state and then still the oil and gas will probably be consumed, but it will be produced somewhere else. So that's that's another example where local government control is not necessarily making things better. Yeah, Colorado. I talked, by the way, about Colorado and my arguing to 100 thing. It's it's a really scary state right now because it's got a lot of, I would say, positive momentum from the past in terms of they've done a lot of good things. They've had affordable energy. You know, they generate, they've historically generated a lot of their energy from coal. They have obviously a lot of hydrocarbons in the ground. They've developed a lot in the past, and yet they have this morally almost intransigent movement that's calling for these suicidal policies. And it's it's kind of the same thing as everywhere else, just the need to have a positive alternative and then the need to expose the nature of these proposals, but also the forms of energy that they advocate. I've become more and more uh, insistent on the idea that, more and more confident in the idea that it's really important to expose the nature of unreliables, including all these battery schemes, because people just have this completely false view of these alternatives, both their practicality and their lack of any kind of negative byproducts. And that's really skewing things. I think that that demon properly demonizing the problems with the alternatives is is a very, very important thing because what we want people to be doing is we want people to be looking at the pros and cons of different processes, like the actual pros and cons of different processes, not just the positives of a fantasy and then the exaggerated negatives of what we do now. Don, what's your next story? Um, so uh, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, he recently vowed to ban fracking nationwide. So in a tweet, he said, Fracking pollutes water, degrades air quality, and worsens climate change. When we are in the White House, we are going to ban fracking nationwide and rapidly move to renewable energy. And like that should really be terrifying. Like if you put that in perspective, that would mean outlawing more than half of all the U.S. oil and gas natural uh, natural gas production increasing energy costs and throwing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans out of work. And I mean, the best analogy I could come up with is like, this is threatening to outlaw large scale farming, which it just so happens another Green New Deal supporter, presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren just vowed to do. So there's just this total attack on the, the foundational industries that we depend on. And it's thrown out there casually and raises his you know, moral status as a crusader for the good, when in, actual, in, in actuality, like this would be a nightmare scenario for us. What did Warren do about agriculture? I haven't looked into the fine grained details, but basically she thinks that there's these agricultural monopolies that are hurting us and we should, that policy should be encouraging small scale farming that the Greens are big fans of. Um, but the the caveat is uh, I want to uh, look at that more closely before I uh, confidently characterize exactly what her view was. 
Got it. This just more and more solidifies in my mind the importance of properly demonizing also the people, not just the the bad energy solutions or non-solutions, but just these these freeloaders like uh, Bernie Sanders, because just it's, you know, this guy is only, I mean, this guy, there's a chance that this guy's only alive or he is alive, I should say, because of fracking. I mean, that's the kind of thing that has extended a lot of people's lives. And so just to say in general, oh yeah, fra- what did he say? Uh, it's, what is it? What do you say about our water? What was his formulation? So his his claim was that it uh, pollutes water. Yeah, pollutes water. This is a this raises a a point I've been thinking about, which I've been thinking about it in how I can be clear in my own thinking, in my own communication, which is just the e- the ease by which people will say that because there because something is true of some uses of a technology it's true of all uses and this is related to what i call the abuse use fallacy but it's not exactly the same thing so it's it's like take the issue of of air emissions so people will say they'll have this idea of okay fossil fuels are dirty and then they'll have this image in their minds of china and they'll say okay this city is dirty and there's a whole aspect of well this city is actually a lot healthier than it was before even though it's got levels of air emissions that are definitely not ideal. But if you just take the technology, but what does it mean to say fossil fuels are dirty? Because for example, natural gas definitely would not lead to that. You'd have essentially pristine uh, air. Well, there's no pristine air because nature doesn't give it to you, but you would have you know very, very clean air. Or if you used much, much better and more advanced coal technology, like clean coal, including different things to refine the coal before you burn it or to burn it more cleanly or to filter it after you burn it, then those technologies will lead to much, much cleaner air. So it's, there's this there's this overgeneralization, really misrepresentation of fossil fuels when we talk about fossil fuels generally, and then people act like they'll take the worst use or the the most negative use, and then they'll equate all of that. And so with fracking, you know, it's so rare that anything is going to happen to the water, but there's just still this idea that, oh, all fracking of all kinds is bad for the water. And then I guess all solar and wind of all kinds are bad for the water, even though we know that the certainly the mining processes involved in those can be very dangerous for the water. So one, one thing to think about is just we want to be more precise when talking about these things. And one way that's helpful to talk about them, I find, is just to talk about them in terms of technologies. And if you talk about, okay, fossil fuel or hydrocarbon technologies, like there are fossil fuel and hydrocarbon technologies that burn extremely cleanly and that totally meet uh, water safety standards. And those are really, really good. And then we can also acknowledge, okay, there's certain uses that don't, and then particularly when they're abuses, when they're not uh, necessary, then we don't want to do that. And then sometimes if if there's some kind of imperfect level of emissions, but it's offset by the benefits of having much cheaper energy, then you want to do that. But there's this just tendency to talk about energy too collectively, and that leads to misrepresenting certain types of energy uh, negatively, namely fossil fuels and nuclear, and then misrepresenting certain types of technology positively, namely solar and wind. All right, Stefan, we'll take one more story from you. What's your last story this week? So the government of California is now recognizing that actually forest management is an important part of mitigating the fire danger in California that has last year killed around 100 people. Uh, The governor Newsom declared an emergency and has announced environmental waivers uh, for certain environmental regulations that uh, impacted the forest management projects. Uh, so the California uh, fire experts and firefighters proposed uh, in the report a bunch of uh, policies that could be implemented to reduce the risk to humans uh, for the next fire seasons. And part of that is uh, clearing forests, uh, maybe even prescribed fires and so on. And so this is sort of 180 degree turn to the previous narrative, which was, oh, climate change is just making uh, fire danger, fires more dangerous in California. And now we have to to deal with climate and we can't really do something about it. So it's getting out of the the passive note that we just have to live with the the, uh, 
fire danger in California, and we need to uh, try not to change the climate too much in the distant future. And of course, some of the uh, environmentalists uh, were against that, notably the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, the Center for Biological Diversity, and Sierra Club uh, argued against that. And they said, well, this will have unintended consequences and maybe more mudslides because uh, fewer trees are present in the forest and so on and so forth. So they are against that. But I, I think this is really reckless because these fires are actually killing people in California and any kind of climate policy cannot in the immediate future help with that. So California needs to get out of this uh, passive stance of we can't do anything and you know start to actually control and master the, the fire danger there. It's important to note that these groups have a very strong vested interest in destructive wildfires because the more and the more any negative climate related phenomena exist and the more damage they do, the more people can leverage the current narrative to blame it on fossil fuel use. So if we had a if we had five years in a row where really, really good forest management uh, led to a decline in wildfires. Of course, they would or wildfire damage. They would evade it, but it would it would be harder for their fundraising. Just like you don't hear them talk too much about the drought in California anymore because we've gotten so much more rain in the past several years. So they would probably switch to something else. But in general, there is there is an alignment that people have that, that many people have in terms of their status and their money with the with actual climate-related damage or even with perceived climate-related damage. And that may sound harsh. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to act on that incentive, although you do notice that there's almost a glee when these things happen because it's, oh, don't you see that fossil fuels are screwing the world? And it's, it's definitely people feel a lot of affirmation. And I notice sometimes when I watch people and their different reactions, to things, I notice, yeah, they just seem a little bit too happy about this negative thing going on. And I can see, yeah, this person might not think their life was too meaningful if there wasn't this evil fossil fuel industry to fight. All right. So I think that's six stories so far today. So that's that's a good mix. I have a thought that I wanted to share, and we'll probably end the power hour a little bit earlier than than usual today, but gonna share something. Hopefully it's clear in its current form. And this is, I'd put this topic as how to think about byproducts. And this is, this is a very valuable skill to have in every area of life and certainly when thinking about energy. Now, let me put this a little bit in context. The, the core of what I call the moral case for fossil fuels is that we need to look at energy issues and really all issues and you know the energy decisions that we face from a human flourishing perspective and first when i say energy decisions we face we face as you know personally professionally and particularly politically we face all these different decisions about what forms of energy should we and other people use in the future, you know, politically, there are these global things like Paris Climate Accords. Uh, nationally, these things like fracking, 100% renewable. Locally, similar kinds of things. And then professionally, there are things like, okay, do we invest in a sustainable fund? Do we? Um, does our company try to go 100% renewable? Do we buy renewable energy credits? And then personally, there are things like, do we use solar panels? Do we buy a Tesla? All of these different kinds of things. So there are just all sorts of different energy decisions that that people are making. And the general idea is that a good energy decision, this is the prevailing idea, the good energy decision is one that is anti-fossil fuels. So if you do anything that moves you or your company or the world away from fossil fuels, then you've done a good thing. And the premise of my work is, no, that's not at all how you want to and, and often they'll think in toward renewable energy, so particularly toward solar and wind. And my premise is no, I don't think of it that way at all. I think of it in terms of human flourishing. So if you're making an energy decision that's helping you flourish or people in your country flourish or people in the world flourish more, um, and hopefully you know those can generally be in harmony, then that's a good kind of uh, decision to make. And it doesn't matter you know, if it comes from coal or if it comes from a solar panel. The thing is really you want to be looking at, okay, what's good for human flourishing? 
And so that raises the issue of how do you know it's good for human flourishing? And this leads to the concept of full impact or overall impact, which is that if you're looking at, let's just say, an energy choice, like, okay, India is using a certain kind of energy, you want to look at, okay, what's the overall impact of that on people's lives? And I find it easiest to think of it this way, first from an individual perspective. So if you imagine we're all producing our own energy, you think of, okay, what in my home would have the best overall impact on my life? And then you can divide that into product and byproduct. So if you're choosing a form of energy, there's the product, which is the energy, hopefully abundant and reliable for that helps you with all sorts of different things in life. So that's the product of it. But then the process that produces the product is always going to have some sort of byproduct. And then that can be that can be waste, that can be a side effect, you know, like a certain amount of uh, air emissions in your home, if we're thinking about your home, and it can be risk, you know, a certain chance of the thing exploding. And so when we talk about full impact or overall impact, it's thinking about, okay, what are the kind of what's the sum total that I'm getting? What's the, you know, what's the benefit of the product plus what's the impact of the byproduct? But the byproduct is important, can have a positive and negative impact. So you can think of it as product minus negative byproducts plus positive byproducts. And it's important to think of all of these. And it's important to think of all of these with precision. And the general observation I make is that people tend to dramatically undervalue the product of abundant, reliable energy, which is the ultimate kind of product because it gives you increased capability to make everything in your life better. And then they tend to dramatically exaggerate the uh, byproducts of things, including treating them as all negative. So I've been thinking about, okay, how do you help people think better about these calculations? And I thought, okay, well, there are, there are at least four principles of byproducts that are really, really helpful in thinking about what's a good decision. And so here are the four. One is that byproducts always have safe levels above zero. Byproducts always have safe levels above zero. So this is the idea that for any given substance in the world, even I think anthrax, there's some level above zero where you're still safe. Unfortunately, anthrax is not a byproduct of stuff, but it's important because you're always going to have some level of byproduct and it's important that some level doesn't mean uh, danger. And sometimes it's literally nothing that can happen to you with a certain quantity. And then in the case of a risk, there's no such thing as zero risk, but you can just talk about it as like a standard background risk. There's just a certain amount of risk that we have in our lives. And the idea is with any given thing, you can get that risk down so that it's just the standard background risk. So it's not a meaningful risk to your life. But it's really important when dealing with byproducts, because if you don't know that they always have safe levels above zero, then you're going to have this fanaticism with getting them to zero. And then you're going to be willing to pay a lot of cost for that. And then that's going to lead to be problem, which is going to be a point I bring up in a minute. So that's one. Byproducts can always have uh, always have safe levels above zero. And now part of that is there are always dangerous levels above zero as well. But I want to emphasize they always have safe levels above zero. Principle two, and these aren't necessarily in any final order, but is that byproducts can be positive. This is really important. That that So if we take something like CO2, CO2 is a byproduct of fossil fuel emissions. And, and for sure, in some cases, it can be positive. That is, there are a lot of plants in the world that are beneficial to us that are growing more because of more CO2. Now, there are probably plants that are not beneficial to us that are growing because of more CO2. I, I have seen nothing to indicate that those in any way match the beneficial plants. But nevertheless, you have to look at all of them. And then you can talk about, okay, warming from CO2, that could be positive and that could also be negative. And so the point here is not in any given case that the positives outweigh the negatives. Usually with most byproducts at a given time, the negatives outweigh the positives. That's sort of why you think of them as byproducts. But nevertheless, it's important that they can be positive. You're not going to do a good full impact analysis or overall impact analysis if you don't recognize and look for positive byproducts. A third principle is that byproducts can often be neutralized. This is a really important one. So if you take the example of coal, and I, I mentioned this in, in an earlier segment, you know, coal is a broad term and coal technology is a broad term, but there are modern, and so you can think of it as, well, when you just burn coal straight, particularly lignite, which is the, the least pure form of coal, when you burn that, then you uh, you create a whole bunch of air emissions of different 
kind of plant things that were in the lignite that you don't want to be exposed to in large concentrations. Although in some concentrations, they're okay. That goes back to byproducts always have safe levels above zero. So you can think of coal as, oh yeah, I'm just burning a bunch of lignite in my home. But really, the technology that exists around coal can help you neutralize those byproducts or those potential byproducts. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can pure, sometimes you can purify the raw materials. So you could purify the lignite. Um, and of course, you could also just use a different form of coal sometimes. And then you can burn it. You know, you could burn it more cleanly. You can filter it. You can do all sorts of different things. But the key is that the a given technology involving a certain kind of substance that people are concerned about, often you can neutralize the byproducts. And that's that's a really cool phenomenon. And we always want to be aware of that because when you think about, hey, should I use coal or not? You want to be aware of, oh, there may be a way to neutralize these byproducts that we associate with coal and therefore I can get a whole bunch of benefit and much lower or even none of the byproduct at a level that I'd be concerned about. Another thing that's related to neutralizing byproducts is you can actually, this is an advanced form of neutralizing, you can actually transform them into wealth. So with say oil, oil, oil used to have all these byproducts and then refiners, the byproducts, you know, you dump them into a lake and then the byproducts, we can now actually turn them into wealth. So if you have a whole barrel of oil, people find value out of every aspect of the barrel. So instead of going into a lake and being a negative byproduct, it becomes a positive byproduct. And now people even think of like the sol diff different things, uh, I guess sometimes the sulfur, but definitely things like tar in a barrel of oil, those are actually really beneficial. You can use them for things like roads. So that's so so far we have byproducts always have safe levels above zero. They can be positive, they can often be neutralized. And then the last one is the one I'm probably most associated with, which is that byproducts can often be offset or overwhelmed by the benefits of the product. Byproducts can often be offset or even overwhelmed by the benefits of the product. So this is the phenomenon that I talk about, say, with the issue of climate, where if you think about, okay, having a certain amount of more CO2 in the atmosphere, that leads to a certain amount of warming, and then that can have certain climate impacts, and some of those can be negative. But the, the benefits that came with that byproduct, which is people having a lot more energy than they than they otherwise would because for billions and billions of people, some form of fossil fuel energy solution is it's either the most affordable or sometimes it's the only affordable way of accomplishing their goals. Like with say air travel, it's the only affordable way of accomplishing your goals. And so all the extra energy that comes with that CO2 has overwhelming benefits, not just in the rest of people's lives, but even specifically in the realm of climate. It enables us to master climate, it enables us to build a very climate resilient civilization, which is why deaths from climate related causes keep going down and down and down because we've, we've effectively mastered climate and we've, we've not only offset uh, man-made climate danger if it exists, but we've offset and overwhelmed a huge amount of natural climate danger. And then on top of that, we've offset and overwhelmed a, na a natural amount of other danger in life, which is why our lives are so much um, longer now and so much more prosperous than they were. So byproducts can often be offset or overwhelmed by the benefits of the product. So if we keep this in mind and we're thinking about decisions, whether we're thinking about our own or national or global, it's good to have in mind this idea of what I want really is I want the best overall impact for the price. When I'm making an energy decision, I want the best overall impact for the price with the proviso that overall impact means product and byproduct, best means human flourishing. And then when we're thinking about the byproducts, we have to be aware of these four things at least so that the byproducts can always have safe levels above zero. So don't treat the byproduct as necessarily toxic in any quantity. The byproducts can be positive or some can, uh, byproducts can often be neutralized, and then the byproducts can often be offset or overwhelmed by the benefits of the product. So applying this to the globe, if you think of the world as, as a, you think of the map of the world, and then you think about the question, what is the best source of energy for all of these people around the world? It's helpful to think of it this way. And I, I think of, of fossil fuels as having these three attributes that you need to be aware of 
uh, and how they compare to others. And so one attribute in the core attribute is resource efficiency. And so that is how, how much energy can they generate with how few resources. And then it turns out for most people, most of the time, and for a lot of people, all of the time, uh, some form of fossil fuel solution is going to be by far the most resource efficient thing. So if you look around, if you think of the whole world as a map, you think of it as, okay, most of the time, fossil fuels are the most resource efficient. Not all of the time, because sometimes maybe hydro in, in Washington state will be good. And you, know, you can imagine solar off grid will be good sometimes, but in general, it's going to be some form of hydrocarbon is the most resource efficient thing, which is going to mean more people on the map have more access to uh, more energy than they otherwise would. So that's that's one piece of the puzzle. And then the next piece of the puzzle is the CO2. So because there's CO2 that comes along with it. And although byproducts can often be neutralized, we don't have right now cost-effective ways of doing that for CO2. So the CO2, a lot of CO2 is going to come along with using these fossil fuels. But then if we evaluate them, we see that they either are at a safe level or they're at least at a safe enough level to be completely offset and overwhelmed by the benefits. So then the implication of that is really CO2 at this point shouldn't change anyone's energy choices because in, in all of the cases, I think the benefits far outweigh the negatives. Now, it's an interesting question if CO2 was uh, more of an issue than what would you do in that's a whole subject. I think in general, you'd focus a lot on climate mastery and on cost-effective alternatives like nuclear. But this is my current assessment is that CO2 shouldn't change anyone's calculations. But then if you look at the other byproducts, I think sometimes those do change people's calculations. And you look at, say, situations in China and India and what are they doing? Well, right now they're using a lot of hydrocarbons, mostly in the form of coal. And it, I think it's quite probable that the best solution for them is to use a cleaner version of coal. So to use higher quality coal, to use different kinds of purification technologies, to use better burning technologies, to use, um, you know, to use better filtering technologies. Because if you look at if you look at product plus byproduct, they in some cases are generating a level of byproduct that's definitely quite far from ideal and can make life quite uncomfortable. And clean hair is a very important aspect of human flourishing. So if you think of the map, it might be that coal is still on their part of the map, but that it's that's too general because it's a cleaner form of coal. And then that way, that might add a little bit of cost, but then it might add a lot of benefit in terms of cleaner air. But we have to be really careful because we don't want to, uh, the more, you know, the, the less affordable we make energy, the, the more we're depriving people of all these kinds of benefits. So this is why you have to think of this kind of thing very, very uh, carefully. But going back to byproducts can often be neutralized. One aspect of that is sometimes byproducts can be neutralized in a, in a cost-effective or even profitable way. So with, say, making oil cleaner has actually been profitable. And it may be that there, I've heard of certain coal technologies like desulfurizing technologies that may be profitable because then you can sell the sulfur for agriculture. So the idea here is when you're making these decisions, you want to think about what is the decision with the best overall impact on primarily the people making it. Now, when we talk about global things, there are certain potential conflicts of interest, and that's a subject for another day. Uh, but in general, you want to just, particularly if you're thinking on a country level where people, those people are, are dealing with the side effects and byproducts of the energy that they're benefiting from, you really want to think about, okay, what's the overall impact on their lives? And what's the solution with the best combination of product and byproduct? And it's very, it's not that the solution is to have no byproduct, but it's to have a level of byproduct. And when you add that with the product, it leads to the best possible outcome. And one more time, you always need to be aware that byproducts always have safe levels above zero, that they can be positive, that they can often be neutralized, and they can often be offset or overwhelmed by the benefits of the product. And I think if people think this way, if they do this really good, accurate type of analysis, then they'll be really excited about how different kinds of hydrocarbons, including coal, can make a lot of people's lives a lot better. And then how depriving people of those different kinds of hydrocarbon options, including the cleaner ones, will make their lives much, much worse. 
So that is my thought for the day. Any comments from either of you on that? Yeah, so I I just had a thought. So you mentioned that byproducts uh, can be beneficial. And if you think about air pollutants, there's a there's a, often a, a situation where actually a little bit of uh, sort of dirty air uh, could be beneficial in the sense that um, if you have too clean an air, your your bodily immune system cannot adapt to that. Um, and so you can have too clean air. So a little bit of um, sort of air pollution might actually be beneficial to us. Yeah, this came up in... in- Robert Phelan's book, and the the idea is that if if you're in a situation where you're inevitably going to be exposed to some kind of level of contaminants in the air, which just happens in nature all the time, then it, it's actually very dangerous to artificially seal yourself off from anything like that, because then then your your natural defenses go down, and there's kind of an equivalent of with the people who are deprived of any kind of dirt early in life, having these much weaker immune systems or um, or people who are, aren't working out at all, who aren't stressing their muscles, how that weakens their muscles and their bones. Don, any thoughts from you before we wrap up? I mean, it reinforces to me the importance about thinking in terms of an ultimate goal of human flourishing, because then it's very easy to just focus maniacally on something like clean. Like clean sounds like that's pretty good, but then you think, all right, well, what we're really concerned with is health and safety. But even those, like to even understand what health and safety are and whether that's something that you're optimizing for, you need to know like what is our ultimate goal? And that includes things like we need energy, we need prosperity, and that there's just no way to think clearly about these things and make proper trade-offs if you don't have in mind an ultimate goal. You're you're inevitably going to optimize for the wrong thing, and it might be something that's legitimate, like health and safety, or it could be something illegitimate, like just clean as an end in itself. And one one addition to that is that when I'm thinking of different kinds of areas of concern with byproducts, so health being a big one, maybe the biggest one that comes up, I find it essential to always be clear on what is the aspect of human flourishing that I'm concerned with. And and it's almost always misdefined by the the popular discussion. So for example, you mentioned clean. So in the con if we're talking about air, I'm working on this section uh, of the book on air emissions. When people talk about air, they usually talk about zero emissions air as the ideal or natural air as the ideal. And both of those are just wrong for reasons Stefan mentioned the goal is not zero emissions because if it's, there's such a thing as air being too clean and then natural, well, you can have natural air from a volcano and that's really bad. So what you want is healthy air. And then that means you know, concentrations of different molecules and compounds that are consistent with your health. And then, uh, Don, as you mentioned, you have to integrate that into a broader context of human flourishing because there are other things that you care about besides your air quality. But but specifically with the air quality, you need to think about, okay, what is it? What is air quality? Uh, what's a standard of air quality that's a human flourishing standard versus what's the standard of air quality that's a green version? Because usually you have this green zero impact version of everything. The same thing with water. Like, okay, you want healthy uh, water, high quality water, or drinking water. You don't want green water, right? You don't want unimpacted uh, water. I mean, you certainly don't want that. And so this comes up with with safety. Like you don't want natural levels of safety, nor do you want like perfect safety or something like that. That's not a valid concept anyway. But you just want to you want to always think about human flourishing as the ultimate thing, and then what's the aspect of human flourishing that I'm considering right now? Another one would be, we want a livable climate. We don't want an unchanged climate. And everyone right now is obsessed with an unchanged climate and they're willing to sacrifice a livable climate and then a a livable life to an unchanged climate. So thinking about the, the, the core idea is we're always looking at, okay, what has the best overall impact on human flourishing? And that includes, okay, for the price, overall impact is product and byproduct, and then best means 
human flourishing. Hope that helps and look forward to writing a lot more about that in the new moral case for fossil fuels. Okay, that is it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. I'm at alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is at don at industrialprogress.net. Stefan is at s-t-e-f-f-e-n at industrialprogress.net. If you would like one of us or someone else in the CIP lineup as a speaker for your high-level event, email Don, don at industrialprogress.net. He can hook you up. If you are an organization and you have some sort of high-stakes messaging challenge where you really need to have great messaging and a lot of money is on the line, you can feel free to email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Just put messaging and we can talk about potentially helping you. Besides that, make sure to subscribe to my email list, alexepsteinlist.com. And other than that, we will be back next week with some more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.